0: May 29th, 2020, a peaceful protest in the name of George Floyd and other deaths at the hands of police turned in an instant and WLWT was there.
1: Ashley and Stephen, things are getting violent right now.
0: On TV, we only get a few minutes to share each story.
1: So we decided to look at every department and not just in Cincinnati, but all of the neighboring agencies and all all of Hamilton County.
0: But here we get to tell you all the details about stories that are important to greater Cincinnati.
1: People in a lot of those communities live in fear of the police. Whether it's justified or not, they don't want to be a part of that.
2: When you do get into these critical situations, you're going to do what you were trained to do. You're not even thinking anymore, you're just
0: reacting. Today on the pod, policing in Hamilton County. In the wake of protests over the in-custody death of George Floyd, we investigate inside your police force who uses cameras and who's training on bias and de-escalation. Also, reporter Jeterra McGee gives us a first-hand account of what the streets of Cincinnati were like on night one of the protests in the city that brought out a heavy police response and a one-on-one sit-down with Mount Healthy Police Chief Vince DiMazi on the difficulties of policing in 2020. I'm Stephen Allbritton, and this is WLWT News 5 Beyond the Studio. Joining us now on the Beyond the Studio podcast, reporter Jatera McGee. Juterra, uh you just finished a big investigation into Hamilton County Police Departments. We know there's been a lot going on in our country with police as far as George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many other cases. So what led you uh, to do this investigation and take us through everything that you were able to gather?
1: Well, I definitely don't think this is a story I would have thought about um, in this capacity if it wasn't for the protests and everything that we saw on the streets of Cincinnati and just talking to people night after night and seeing a lot of pain and a lot of frustration we knew that after the protests were over our coverage of the issues couldn't stop and that we had to do it take it a step further because a lot of the times when you're talking to protesters on the street and also when you're talking to police and when you're talking to lawmakers there's a lot that people just don't know so they make assumptions based off of things that they just don't know Uh, and they say things like every um, police officer in in Cincinnati should have a body camera. Well, they do. So we decided to look at every department and not just in Cincinnati, but all of the neighboring agencies and all all of Hamilton County to one, show the difference between departments because Cincinnati is a very progressive department in terms of some of these areas compared to a lot of the other departments in our city, but also just to kind of be an open book and show people the current situation if you have a problem with a certain department or if you think there are areas that need improvement then you can then take that information and try to create change but first we have to show people what the current situation is mm-hmm.
0: and how did you go about gathering all this information i'm sure you guys uh had to dig in quite a bit
1: lots and lots of phone calls so we started making calls i started making calls mid-june and then i sort of was talking to our assistant news director Kristen Kay, and she was I was telling her how much um, work was involved and how long these calls were taking to gather this information, because some of these calls, I was on the phone with the chief for 20 to 30 minutes. Some of them just took less time, thankfully. But she said, we need to recruit some help. (laughs) So um, some of our desk associates, Lindsay and Thea, were really helpful and made a lot of these calls with me. And Kristen made a couple herself too. And we basically had a list of questions that we were asking of these departments. Do you have body cameras? Does every single officer have one? do they activate automatically? So when you pull your gun or taser, or when your lights and sirens come on, does your body camera activate? Um, Issues that have been topics in police shootings and in some of these controversial arrests and um, deaths in custody over the years, we took that opportunity to ask those questions. So we can tell you that a certain department has cameras, but at the same time, the majority of departments in Hamilton County can't afford the cameras that activate automatically. So you've got to rely on officers remembering in the moment to turn them on. A lot of departments also have policies that um, whenever you respond to a call, you have to turn on that camera. That's great, but sometimes, we've, as we've seen in high-profile cases over the years they don't turn it on or they forget to turn it on. So we wanted to include that information that people necessarily weren't talking about right now, but we still think is important in the larger context. And in the stories that aired um, at six o'clock and 11 o'clock one day, and then some breakout stories we're doing as well, we haven't dug into a lot of those issues, but they're on the website, there's charts for every department in the county and you can see the answers to those questions and the answers to questions about dash cameras that go in the cruisers and the answers to questions about training. So that if someone wants to know the information, they have it and when it's time for us to do stories on that topic, we have it as well.
0: Okay, so let's get into some of the data. We'll start with those uh, dash cameras and body cameras. Uh, what did you find, it seems like budget is just the big issue even if a police department wants to get them.
1: They're extremely expensive, and that's what every police chief just about said to me, whether it was a department that has them or, or that doesn't, whether it was one that really sees value in them or necessarily doesn't necessarily see that same value, was the price. You're not just paying hundreds of dollars for each camera, for each officer. Some departments will share them, so when you're not on duty, someone else is using yours. But the fees that I think the general public don't um, know about and isn't talked about as much is the storage fees, When you think about your cell phone, and once you hit a certain amount with photos and videos, you've got to start paying. It's a similar concept. So they've got to pay to store all this video. When the public, when the media, when um, prosecutors and attorneys are requesting this video, they have to have someone who's downloading it, getting it ready, um, redacting personal information or any confidential information. And a lot of departments have to hire a separate person just to do that. So on top of the fees for paying for the body cameras and any maintenance or upkeep they need, they have to hire an additional person, pay additional salary. Um, Cincinnati, I think, has, they have nine full-time people and then a supervisor, so 10 people that are specifically handling this video. And they've got a thousand officers and a lot more videos, so that makes sense. But that just shows you the cost, just that the storage and um, redactions involved for these agencies. So I think there were surprises in terms of um, once we collected all the data and were able to look and see first of all who has them and who doesn't it was surprising that the hamilton county sheriff's office being such a large agency and and seeing how much is demanded of police agencies specifically um, in the city and the larger ones it was surprising that they don't have dash cameras in 2020 and i was even talking to um, some other departments and that came up and they were surprised to hear that as well they do have body cameras Um, Cincinnati police have body cameras and dash cameras, but the majority of departments in Hamilton County do not have body cams. So 40% of police departments in Hamilton County require their officers to wear body cameras, which means 60% do not. So you would expect in 2020, some would expect that maybe more um, would have those at this point, but a lot of them say they just can't afford them. And a lot of the agencies, the community, hasn't necessarily called for that or expected that and i've had chiefs that told me that as well you know our community they're fine with us not having them so there's no need for us to make to have that expense as well
0: when you talk about that cost and the extra people involved just to store it it really kind of shows you it's not just a a camera on the officer situation it's like we have to you know allocate a whole bunch of funds just for this now let's get into um you know bias and de-escalation you know i i looked through some of your numbers as you were finishing um, up this project and you know one thing that struck me was how little diversity of the 45 departments i think you looked at a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, departments did not have a very diverse force. You know, you take out Cincinnati with a a 1,000 officers, there is still 30% uh, diversity. But, you know, take us through going through those numbers and just counting up agency after agency after agency that was essentially all white.
1: I think one thing that's difficult is that I expected that there would be departments that didn't have a lot of diversity, especially when you look at how Hamilton County is made up. So there's a lot of urban areas, and then there are areas that are, out far from beyond the city and you would expect that there isn't as much diversity in a lot of those areas. So that wasn't surprising. I think what was surprising is as the data is coming in and it's one department after another that has hardly any diversity or doesn't have any diversity at all. There were 16 departments that all officers, um, all sworn officers are white. And then you have another 16 who have 10% of less diversity on their police forces. That's 32 of the 45 departments right there. And then I was expecting, okay, but there are going to be a lot of departments that do have a lot of diversity. And when you look at Hamilton County, you're looking at a little bit over 30% of Hispanic, Asian, Black um, constituents. That's not what the police forces look like in very many of these police agencies at all. The only three that even come close to that are Cincinnati and Woodlawn that are both around 31%. And then uh, the Ohio State Highway Patrol, Hamilton Post has about 24% diversity. Um, So I think I just expected that there would be a little bit more in 2020, which may have been a, a naive thing to think. And a lot of the departments that you talk to, they see that it's a problem. One of the things that some of these police chiefs pointed out is that One of the things that's hard about recruiting and going into black communities and Hispanic communities and trying to get them to come on board is that people in a lot of those communities live in fear of the police, whether it's justified or not. They don't want to be a part of that. And I've talked to black officers who said they get it from both sides that they have people within their own community saying, why would you ever want to be a part of the police? And a lot of them get into it because they want to help fix some of those problems and improve community police relationships. But police uh, chiefs that I spoke with, a lot of them said it's really hard recruiting diverse candidates who actually want to be a part of the police force, especially in this kind of climate. So you can criticize departments for not having diversity, but at the same time, you have to understand some of the challenges that they're up against. At the same time, I've had several chiefs who flat out said, you know, our numbers aren't acceptable and we need to do better.
0: And I don't know if you're able to dig into, you know, the how they are recruiting. Have they mentioned how they try to, do they go to high schools? Do they just walk the streets and say, hey, it's it's a great job to be a police officer. Did you get into any of
1: that? Some of the more effective departments, Cincinnati, for example, and they have a bigger recruiting budget, obviously, because it's a much bigger city, but they say they go, they go out into the community, they also recruit at different colleges. Some of the suburban departments we talked to have gone to HBCUs, Histori- Historically Black Colleges and Universities, and tried recruiting um, people from those colleges and getting them to come here. And some departments have said it's difficult competing with Cincinnati trying to get diverse candidates because Most diverse candidates see Cincinnati. They can make a lot more money there. They go through their police academy training for free, it's paid for by the city. So they said that's an obstacle as well. Um, So it's a range. It depends on what department you talk to, which is definitely a theme that we saw in so many of these topics some departments are doing a great job and others have different challenges and others just aren't doing a great job in other categories mm-hmm.
0: yes and once again we're going to uh, link uh, jaterra's stories in the show notes of this so you guys can go back and uh, watch what she put together and even go online and uh, take a look at her data um, but one thing uh, Jatera was involved in um when the unrest in our city kicked off i guess that first night you would call it that friday night um at the end of may Jatera you were out on the streets Watching all of this happen, you know, really, really quickly, you were talking to the police chief that night. I remember I was on set and the chief was praising the protesters doing things in a peaceful way and everything just kind of switched in a moment's notice. Take us through that night from from your perspective, from when you got to, um, I think it was a, a the precinct just down the street from us, um, to three or four or five hours later when we finally got off the air. Take us through that night.
1: It was so odd because... All night, as we got um, late evening into the night, you questioned if things were going to pick up, but everyone seemed to be peaceful, people were yelling, but no one was being violent, no one was throwing things, and they're just marching from one part of the city to the next, and at this point, there were no organized protests. So these protests sort of came out of nowhere, and then people just were joining in. And around 11 o'clock during our our, um, newscast, we're interviewing the chief, And he was being very open and talking about how painful that week had been for him as a black man, as a police chief in his role and trying to digest all of that. And we had also talked to him and some other police chiefs about um, how frustrating it was seeing what happened to George Floyd. Yeah, just a few days
0: earlier. This was within the same week, I believe. Yeah.
1: Right. And it's rare that you see police officers and police agencies making statements after an in-custody death. There were so many locally even who made these statements saying this was wrong we know it was wrong we condemn this and we talked to chief isaac about that on air we talked to him about how peaceful everything had been and i asked him if anything gave him hope that night and he said they've been willing to have some dialogue they've been willing to talk and then i'm listening in my ifb and a couple minutes later I just hear Helena's voice drop and she's talking about people breaking windows at the Justice Center and just seeing that shift and the dialogue and conversation happening between the chief and other officers, especially several black officers who were talking with protesters outside of District 1 and then seeing that shift that as soon as that happened, police took off in riot gear on the buses on the way to District 1, everyone's mood changed. There was just a shift and then the rest of the night just downgraded from there. And I think it was almost disappointing to see we try to keep our emotions out of all of this, but it was disappointing because when everything had been peaceful and there, was, there were all of these conversations happening that you don't see community members who don't like police often conversing with police and having some good conversation, seeing that and thinking, cincinnati is going to to do it better cincinnati is going to be an example and then how quickly it shifted and i think helena and i talked about this after the coverage you could just see people joining in who weren't involved in the protests all night who were coming and breaking things and stealing things and i know that was frustrating for police um it was odd to cover as a journalist because everything had been going so well and it changed so quickly and the people that we were seeing committing these crimes that became the headlines the next day and days to come weren't out all evening um, peacefully protesting and talking to the the police officers and sharing dialogue. So it was a very interesting experience. Haven't quite digested it all the way.
0: Yeah, even uh, you know a couple months later, you know we still think back to that night and I can remember it. It vividly how, as you mentioned, things switching over and changing from, you know, people outside of the precinct talking to the chief to we turned a corner. We were back to Helena, Helena Battapagli, another reporter here, um, and somebody was throwing a skateboard through a glass. Now, for, for you personally, as a woman and as a black woman, being in the middle of that as a journalist, you know, what was that like for you? Because this is not something that you walk into this career expecting to cover unrest like that. At some point in your career. You know, what, what was that like for you? I know you said you're still digesting that whole evening, but I guess what, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about you know, covering uh, uh, an unprecedented event like that?
1: Well, we definitely don't have time to talk about all of the, all of the things I learned about myself <laughs> during that time. But over the, the week especially, because the first week is when we saw most of the large protests, um, it was definitely a challenge. It was a challenge because just like the coronavirus, it was a story that we were telling that when you go home, it's not over. You go home and you turn on the news and there are cities with burning buildings and huge protests happening on weekday mornings and you really can't get away from it. Um, You go on social media and that's all that you see. And then at the same time, on social media, um, people responding to you on Twitter and Facebook, you see people spreading false information and it's frustrating because I'm like, I was there, this did not happen. But at the same time, you don't wanna look like you're taking one side or the other. You just wanna correct the information. So it was very interesting and outside of of live shots and gathering information and, and trying to get the best, most accurate information with the most voices onto the air, there were a few moments that I had protesters come up to me um, because a lot of the protesters, the majority of the protesters I interacted with were, um, I don't want to say friendly, but we didn't have any problems. They were fine with us being there. But there were there was a group, and there were a lot of protesters, especially um, towards the end of the protest, who didn't want media there, and they didn't want our presence there. And I had a few people stop me at times saying, you're part of the problem, you are the enemy, you are fake news, and I turned to a couple and probably said more than I should, but I said, I'm a black woman, so I get it. I get all, I get every side of this. You don't get to say that I'm part of the problem. I'm out here trying to tell the story and tell it correctly and tell it with perspective and share your story, whether you want me to be here or not. And I think that was a, a big frustration for me of, understanding the issue and understanding that this was bigger than George Floyd and people weren't just upset about that and that there were things in Cincinnati and across the country that a lot of black people um, have been hurt by and frustrated by for years that are coming back to the surface again and I thought it was so important to illustrate that in our coverage and even in the way that I questioned Certain people I interviewed, I interviewed one woman who um, she said she was out during the 2001 civil arrest, uh, unrest. And I asked her what was different about it. And I asked her, So you're out here again for George Floyd. Is it George Floyd that brought you out here? And she said, No. I mean, that's part of it. That made me angry. But it's the fact that the things that we were protesting for in 2001 are still happening and that we haven't made much progress. And I think. Telling those stories and getting people that maybe don't understand or see racial injustice or maybe um, that's not the what they see on a daily basis, getting them to understand those stories and that they're not just an opinion in a lot of circumstances, they're fact and they're how someone lives their life and the challenges they face on a daily basis. Getting people to understand that, I thought was so important and as difficult as it was to be a part of this coverage day in and day out, I think um, I'm glad that I was there so that I could tell those stories and ask those questions. And at the same time, a lot of this, of course, was racism was part of the conversation. Policing was a big part of it too. And from talking with police over the years in my last market in West Virginia and in the Cincinnati area, I knew how officers felt about a lot of the issues, so when I was in interviews and talking with people on the streets who were protesting, I could say, well, here's why they say that's a problem, or here's why they don't agree with that, or here's why police do that, and then it became, the conversation was just elevated to the next level instead of just a soundbite that you hear on the news of saying, you know, all police are bad, or something was wrong. There was more context, and it was, okay, here's what I do agree with and here's what I don't agree with. And I just think that sometimes um, in our roles we can be a little surface level, especially because we've got to turn our stories out so quickly, but I think that there were several moments that maybe I couldn't go in depth with the whole story, but I was able to ask a question because of my background that I think elevated the conversation a little further, and that's what we hope the investigation inside your police force will do.
0: Jatara McGee, thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Studio. We're going to link all of your uh, stories and investigations in the show notes here for you at home to go and take a look at. Uh, She mentioned a lot of things go into this between um, bias and diversity, gender roles, all of that stuff uh, she was able to look into and you'll be able to go and take a look at all of that stuff yourself. We're going to take a break here on Beyond the Studio. On the other side, you're going to hear a conversation Jatara had with a police chief here in Cincinnati. We're going to break down what he said about things going on in our country Right now,
2: accuracy. It matters in everything you do. Your GPS needs to be accurate. Take a left on third. Your taxes need to be accurate. And your dentist needs to be accurate. You choose accuracy every day. And for an accurate forecast, Choose WLWT Weather. It's the only forecast in Cincinnati independently certified most accurate. Nine years in a row and counting. Accuracy does matter. Choose accuracy. Choose
0: WLWT Weather. Welcome back. We're continuing to take you inside your police force with an in-depth look inside all 45 Hamilton County departments. Mount Healthy Police Chief Vince Damazzi used to be an assistant chief in Cincinnati. He started as a police officer back in 1976 with his career taking him to West Palm Beach, Florida before returning to take over at Mount Healthy. Chief Damazzi has seen so much through the years and he knows change is still needed. And it's disconcerting to me as a police chief to know that there's members of our community
2: that have trepidation about what type of police response they're going to get
0: if they call the police. Demasi says having people scared to call police is a problem, but that goes on the other side too. They're scared, and that's a bad situation.
2: Anytime you have police officers that are scared and start second guessing themselves about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, it's very frightening. and the last thing that I think we want as a community is to have our officers just say, forget it. You know, it's, it's gotten too complicated.
0: Mount Healthy has 19 officers protecting a city population of around 6,000. Most of their budget goes to pay salaries, but that budget is tight. Chief Demazi says they are in a rebuilding phase with limited funds, a small city with big city problems.
2: Most small agencies, we struggle just to, to get the very basic stuff budget-wise. It would be a travesty to lose some of these smaller police agencies because we are able to, to communicate and to respond to the needs of our community in a way that's much different than what a large agency can do. Uh, the relationship that we've seen and the amount of outpouring of, of people showing support for us, especially over the last few weeks, has been just unbelievable.
0: Despite their tight budget, DeMazi's department is among only 18 in the county with body cameras for every officer, and they must be activated manually. Chief DeMazi says getting those early in his tenure came at an enormous cost, but was worth every penny for accountability.
2: I think that if citizens know that whatever it is that that a police officer does is gonna be examined and examined fairly and honestly, And if the officer does something that is inappropriate or wrong or criminal in nature, they're going to be held responsible for that. Uh, I don't see where that's a problem.
0: Mount Healthy does participate in annual bias, de-escalation, and diversity training. And it's with those tools that he hopes the right decisions will be made, but says there will be tragedies and there's no way to get around that.
2: In the heat of the moment, your training, your policies and procedures what your community expects from you all have to line up in order for things to work, because when you do get into these critical situations, you're gonna do what you were trained to do. It's, it, you're not even thinking anymore, you're just reacting, and that reaction has to be based on a lot of thought and a lot of, of research into how you can get through these things successfully, and that's what we pay you know, our police chiefs and our council people to, to be doing.
0: The chief says he'd like to see departments join forces in the data world. He thinks understanding what others see could go a long way towards helping problems in their own backyard.
2: In the morning when I come into work, uh, I have no idea what Coleraine Township is done, or Springfield Township, or North College Hill, or Forest Park, or for that matter, Cincinnati. And we're at a point, especially in, in society today, where we have the ability to analyze and understand criminals, uh, patterns, trends, And rather than just sending police officers out to cast these very broad nets that inadvertently stop people that probably shouldn't be stopped um, and create some of these hardships and some of these misunderstandings that, that seems to be very prevalent in today's society, if we could focus on developing a records management system, That would do
0: a lot of the data analytics. His message to the public, try to understand what officers sacrifice each day to protect and serve their communities.
2: But you have to have an understanding of what the officer is going through. And you have to have a good understanding of the officer's limitations. And you can't draw that from watching TV shows about police officers.
0: That's all we have this week for the WLWT Beyond the Studio podcast. Remember, down in the show notes, we'll have links to all of Jair McKee's investigation into the Inside Your Police Force stories, so you can go take a look for yourself about what's going on inside police departments across Hamilton County. Again, if you like this podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. I'm Stephen Albrighton. Thanks for listening.